Well, hey, Chris. Hey, John. Are you ready to talk about the latest episode of Better Call Saul with me? I am ready. Yay! Let's do it. Okay, if you're not sure what we're talking about, Better Call Saul is the spinoff of Breaking Bad that AMC is currently airing. And uh, we've been doing this podcast as long as the show's been around, but we've added something new this season. In addition to talking about Better Call Saul, we've been taking a step back. We've been comparing Better Call Saul to other spinoffs. Now, before this episode, I was saying we've been comparing Better Call Saul to other important spinoffs or other uh, influential spinoffs or spinoffs that might have some claim to being the best spinoff. Right. We've been working off of a list. We we started with Aftermash, the MASH spinoff, and then we moved on to Barnaby Jones, which is a kind of sort of spinoff of the William Conrad detective show, Canon. And these shows are, you know, interesting, but I don't know how important they are. So we're going to do that again this week, and I think we might get into this subject a little bit later about Good. exactly what this list is we've been working from. I'm really wondering about the one, yeah, for this week. It's, there's something not right. But... The third episode of Better Call Saul's fourth season is our main topic here, so let's get to that. It was called Something Beautiful, written by Gordon Smith and directed by Daniel Sackheim. I don't know, I think coming after last week when we had Jimmy's brilliant scene in Neff Copiers where he uh, goes in for the job interview, and we had Kim's blow up at Howard at HH&M, I think this episode by nature was going to seem more low-key than that. There wasn't anything quite as explosive for those two characters as that. But there was some really interesting stuff going on. And I really think if we're looking at who had the roughest ride or the most interesting story, we can say Nacho's story has gotten very interesting this season. Um, so, so yeah, it's a, it was an interesting episode. What did you think overall of Something Beautiful? Um, yeah, Nacho definitely had a, a, a rough ride last night. Um, uh, I liked it a lot. It had uh, uh, action and adventure. It had criminality. And it had a caper. And uh, those things are fun. And... Uh, uh, everything was was well done. With all that in mind, I think we can dig into what's going on with some of the characters here. Now, Kim this week was uh, I, w- I would say she loomed large in the episode for me, but she didn't actually have a lot to do. But her big scene was at Mesa Verde, which basically just reset that for people, I guess, who may have forgotten where things were left. Yeah. But she had her accident last year when she was on her way to an important meeting. We see that Kevin, the head of Mesa Verde, is. Um, very much still in her corner, if not a little creepily patriarchal. What did he say when he saw her with her cast on? He said, a baby bird with a broken wing. Right. <laughs> I was like, that's weird. You're not her dad. But maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's... Uh, or why, you know, that I suppose that's a nice analogy. You're saying someone could fly, but right now they uh, are taken down a peg. But why is it a baby bird? That's what I'm saying. If it were a bird with a broken wing, right. then you would say, okay, there's a poetry to that. Yes. But baby bird is a little bit like... I mean, I can't hear someone say baby bird without thinking of John Voight and Anaconda. <laughs> right, baby bird. Baby bird. <laughs> Kim has not lost a step as far as Mesa Verde is concerned. Now, she is looking a little strained. I think maybe that was for our benefit that we can see that she seemed a little disoriented in this world. We are introduced to a new character, Viola Goto. Her, um, Kim's paralegal, and she seemed like a nice person who was on the ball. There's no reason to suspect anything of her except that she might turn out to have more of a role, or she might turn out to have more of a character. Right. Like anybody on the show, you don't really know what's going to be the deal. Seems like she's a good match for Kim and that she may actually challenge Kim and kind of egg Kim on in an interesting way. I really think what the show might be doing that's very smart. They now have a another female character for Kim to bounce off of and they can talk about something that isn't Jimmy. Mm-hmm. I think even if it's just a few scenes here or there, it helps it helps the show round out Kim's character and it helps kind of pay off that promise that they're taking her seriously as a character. When you get your own secondary characters, then you're a pretty good character. You know, Kim has her little fleet of mm-hmm. secondary characters now, Paige and Kevin and, and now Viola. Helps with uh, the, the Bechdel test. So yes, we love Kim. We see that Kim's a little frazzled still. We know that she's thinking about Jimmy somewhere in the back of her brain, but it doesn't seem like it's part of the text of this scene. The text of this scene seems to be about Kevin's plans for Mesa Verde and there's this expansion that Kim is feeling uneasy about what did you think was going on there with Kim's mindset uh, about particularly the the expansion plans, which seemed to give her a lot of thoughts that she didn't express. Right. And she can be so uh, uh, stone-faced that you don't know what she's thinking. And my first thought, as soon as she went in there and she's looking at all the models and she kind of goes into a trance, uh, well, the music was kind of lovely. And I thought she was uh, having a moment of like, um. Oh my God! I've just found the goose that laid the golden egg. The 
because the music is kind of nice and she's floating through looking at these models and I thought she was thinking to herself holy cow what I thought was going to be a a, a six month job just turned into what looks like a 20 year job this could be my career you know that these people are really expanding mm-hmm. but then as you go on she doesn't seem like she's pleased and really at all and and she sort of disconnects she had planned to write the contract herself but now she's going to make viola do it and so on and it kind of made me think okay maybe i was supposed to be seeing her as getting overwhelmed for some reason like she went in there thinking uh we've got this i'm fine but then when she saw that it's going to turn into this much work that she started thinking oh my god maybe this is too much for me but i mean is that just because she has a broken arm and had a car wreck and she like why would she be so overwhelmed because she seems generally like a a real uh uh go-getter so maybe she has a little ptsd I mean, I think she does. I think everything is affecting her a little bit. I think we'll get to that again at the end of the episode when we talk about Jimmy's storyline a little. Yeah. But at the moment, if we're just looking at what's happening in her career, what is she feeling? Is she is she impressed? Is she excited? Is she sort of aghast at at the overreach? Yeah, I did have that thought in the moment when she said, wow, it's a quite a, an aggressive, fast expansion or something that she could have been thinking this bank is not big enough to be making these plans. This is stupid. Now I know that this company is going to fail in two years, you know, or something uh, like that. But the, again, that that's very unclear. Do you think the fact that Kim stops and looks at the cowboy sculpture in the lobby of Mesa Verde as she's leaving, do you think that is meant to be like a visual cue? She sees this giant cowboy, and that's maybe how she sees Kevin, that maybe we're supposed to link that feeling that she had, that she was looking at the statue with some reticence, that maybe she's worried about this, the hubris of this this bank cowboy that she works for? I would say more that that would just go along with the overwhelmedness, because it's so big, because now she comes out and she's looking at this huge logo that looms up over everyone, and so that would That'll be a nice visual reminder that, like, well, maybe this is too big for me to take on right now. I feel like I shouldn't have come off of uh, vacation so quick. Well, let's move on to, um, I guess we'll get into some blood and guts, man. This is some pretty crazy stuff. The opening scene of the episode was one of those great cold opens they used to have on Breaking Bad all the time, and they do on this show very well, where you don't know what the hell is going on for the longest time. Yeah, they unfold it. I really loved the moment of oomph where you go, oh, I get what's happening. And then they add the extra oomph of Nacho doesn't just get shot once. He takes two. Gus doesn't just have control of this guy. He's continuing to punish Nacho. Yes. Well, and and he's just using him. You know, he's he's uh, uh, he's got him so under his thumb that he can get him to uh, drive the car <laughs> on the way out to his own shooting. And... Uh, and to lie there in the desert, waiting on somebody to come pick him up. So a great pleasure of this storyline was how it took us through what happens to Nacho and how the situation gets put right. And I, I have to say, I loved the crossover of Jimmy walking out of the vet's office and and one of the cousins walking in, and they bump shoulders practically. Yep. And yet, for a second, I was thinking, oh wait, how's this gonna how's this gonna reflect on Jimmy? And you realize no connection. This is just this guy is a nexus for a lot of characters we know about. It's just a close call in a small world. Right. But I mean, that guy doesn't know who Jimmy is and Jimmy doesn't know who that is. So it's like there was no real close call there for Jimmy. He's not connected to that yet. Right. Right. It's just for us. It gave our, our, our shady vet a lot more to do. It was a really good episode for him. And you actually kind of worried about him. But it also seems like this guy has the swagger of those low level people who are associated with this crime world that they kind of because they can provide a service, they are sort of insulated. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it would have been a risky move for them to kill him at that moment. Right, but he feels a little bit safe to uh, be grouchy about it, but at the same time, he knows it's it's too dangerous. He wants to get out of it. Right, he didn't sign on for this. I wonder if that means it's the last time we'll see him. Are they trying to make the cousins into characters for us just a little bit more? Are they trying to give us a tiny bit more of those guys and make us... Because I'm still not sure if I'm supposed to know which one is which, and I feel bad saying that. <laughs> no, I think that, yeah, they, they definitely haven't defined for us uh, which is which, and they haven't gone really beyond like these are a couple of guys who are practically mute and who are just horrible assassins you know they they haven't opened it up much more than that so i don't i don't think that's the plan right now 
the way this immediately affects things is it seems that it, the ruse worked, that the cousins bought the the staged shooting. I was I was not quite yeah. clear how much they knew or if that was going to be another thing that would haunt Nacho. But from a storytelling standpoint, that seems like really too much to bear. If now the Salamancas are suspicious of him, <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Like it's too much for the story to bear right now, maybe in yeah. an episode or two. But right. right now it's too much. Right. No, it just works perfectly. You burn the car and everything. You've got the blood. They did a great job. So it seemed to be no reason, at least for now, that you would ever suspect it wasn't an actual whack job. I kept thinking the only person smart enough to figure out this plan is Gus, and it's his plan. Right. Speaking of Gus, Bolsa calls him and basically says, this is going crazy. You know, we've 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 had an attack. We don't know who it's from. Um their plan is to dry up the flow of drugs. They have mm-hmm. about a week that they can do that and test to see if anybody comes out for these decoy trucks that they're going to send out. Um, and I, I couldn't tell if there was anything more said about what might be done or just that Gus was going to handle all that. And Bolsa seemed to be basically saying, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. And Gus was saying, no, no, let me try to handle it. You know, I've got a plan. Um, which seemed interesting enough to see that Gus is kind of pleased with himself that right now things are working you know this this he's got nacho under his thumb and and they've covered for it well enough that arturo's death isn't even going to be pinned on him at least not it doesn't seem that way and now he's gonna now he's being told to do the thing that he wanted to do right which is find another source right and then minutes later to see gail bedeker um who is a beloved character by me and by many and to just to feel like, okay, you know what, of all the characters that might pop up and all the scenarios I was picturing, this was one that I really didn't picture until he was right there in front of me. Like, I, I pictured Gail might come into it, but in this scene, I wasn't thinking, oh, he's going to talk to Gail. I was thinking, what's he doing? Is he, he's out of school. What's this? Who's that guy? He's singing. It was just a great moment. Mm-hmm. And it suggests a way that Gail could easily be a recurring character on this show, um, and that you would get some pleasure from that, primarily because... Gus seems to like him. Yeah. He smiled so much when he was talking to him, and I don't think it was all a put-on. I don't think he was manipulating him fully. I think that he's delighted, and he thinks he's smart, and he's impressed with him. And I just think that's uh, that's neat. And something Gail said hinted at a kind of quid pro quo past something with, between those two guys. Mm-hmm. Did you catch that, where he said, it's the least I can do? Yeah, there's something. It's not, not clear what their deal is, how he knows them, how, how they've gotten into this relationship. But... Uh... Maybe we'll figure that out. I don't know. I mean, I don't know actually how interested I am in seeing every step that leads up to what we already know, but just showing us how things were going on and showing us that, yes, of course, Gus and Gail have a relationship feels like it deepens Gus and it gives Gail a chance to maybe get more screen time, which is a beauty of a prequel is that these dead people can walk around and entertain us some more. Right. There's actually another Breaking Bad character who pops up in this episode, and we're about to talk about him, I believe, because we are now moving on to... The Jimmy right. side of things. Right. This was a good Jimmy episode. This was very much a good, if you saw the first episode of this show and you knew about Slip and Jimmy, you might think that there would be many episodes like this where Jimmy McGill has a scheme and he's going to pull it off somehow. Um, and I kept thinking, is this scheme going to go horribly wrong and backfire? But once it, is, it went essentially to plan, you know, more or less, it went off. They, they succeeded. Uh, nobody got hurt and right. they succeeded. Right. Um, but in the middle, it went horribly wrong. I had been in suspense how it was going to go, but of course it was going to work out because this is the part of the story that's about Slip and Jimmy. And he has to succeed at some of these things before the little web of causation that these storytellers like to spin. Right. The guy who he hired through the vet is Ira, who ran Vamanos Pest Control in season five of Breaking Bad. Right. The premise there was that Vamanos Pest Control did tent your house and... and you know, fumigate, but they also robbed your house or they got information about your house and key codes and duplicate keys and things going on that they could sell to someone or use later right. to rob your house. Right. And I remember, I believe one of the conditions was when it's one of the houses that, that Walt and Jesse are using as a you know temporary meth lab, um, you are not allowed to rob those houses. Right. In this episode, they, they do seem kind of cordial with each other, he and Jimmy. Um, so it's believable that they would still be involved in schemes together and that Jimmy would call Ira when he needed... And he needed something or that Ira would say, hey, can you help me set up this company or whatever? Right. That this is the beginning of a, of a beautiful friendship. Jimmy manages to sell the scheme to him in a way that the vet couldn't do. Right. 
Nobody thought Jimmy should uh, commit this crime, especially not Mike, who I really thought was going to have a lot to do in this episode and have some great scenes with him and Jimmy. Uh, But instead, I mean, I have to say, as momentous as it was to see Mike and Jimmy talk about this and have a scene together and Mike get to offer his condolences and all that stuff. um, It's like absolutely zero came from that interaction between the two characters. And I'm wondering, is this just becoming a sort of a sick joke that these two guys will never going to cahoots (laughs) right it's like they just put him in the show and it's two or three different shows that we're watching that will never all come together into one thread that that would be uh quite weird and and frustrating but uh uh, yeah i liked seeing mike and jimmy together but uh i i figured mike wouldn't uh be into it it's just such a small petty thing especially now he's got a regular job and regular paycheck uh to go steal a hummel and then of course it also sounds like it's 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 not in his code and he he asked jimmy did these guys cross you or something like why would you do something so small and goofy unless you're mad at these guys i mean honestly it might be a case of realism in the writer's room who would jimmy call he'd probably call mike right whether he thinks this is a mike type job or not mike's reliable and discreet right and the flip side of that is they would then say oh jimmy would definitely ask mike but mike would definitely not do it for all the reasons that you said it's just like it's so clearly not something that has ermin trout written all over it it is petty and it does seem strange and small and risky um so i think that that is interesting and we the viewer are watching that kind of agreeing that this doesn't seem like that i mean it's 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 a lot of money i would love eight thousand in my pocket all of a sudden but it doesn't seem like such a score that it's worth getting so jazzed about it and pushing it forward. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of uh, they're going to take any uh, opportunity they have to, hey, here's a moment we can and probably should throw Mike and Jimmy together. But yet again, it's not a thing that's going to lead to a lot. But hey, this is what we're doing on the show. That's just how it's going to go. I do like that Mike was just kind of giving Jimmy the hard stare the whole time, just like looking at him like you're spinning out. And just kind of trying to give him fatherly advice. He doesn't say why... He doesn't think he should do it, but he says, you know, I, I, this is not my thing. It's not my bag. What does he say? This isn't for me, and I don't think it should be for you either. Right. I don't think it should be for you either. But he doesn't say why, but it's just an, a fatherly bit of advice. Like, mm, it's not a good look. I think that Slippin' Jimmy is like a guy, is like a sex addict or an alcoholic or anything like that, where it's like he's going through stress, and he's going to feel the, the urge to be this guy, this guy who's running schemes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like when he got on the phone with Ira who we didn't know was Ira yet, uh, at the vet's office. He's, his, the, way, the way he got his attention was by saying, do you shit gold? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a good pitch. It's a, it's a question that you cannot answer wrong. You know, it's one of those salesman questions where they, they put you in a place where you can't worm out of it. So, yeah, I, th- I loved the way this robbery went. I thought it was a fun, tense scene. I liked getting a little bit more of, of Mr. Neff, uh, who is sleeping at the office because he's had an argument with his wife over him buying her a vacuum. You're saying I'm a, I'm a thoughtless, that I don't care. But it is a very, very expensive vacuum. It, it never loses suction. So what you're saying is I've got, I got to sleep in my office because I got you a gift? Lynette? Lynette? To me, giving your wife a vacuum is kind of the most trite, cliche, perfect, uh, horrible mistake that a husband can make. But I don't blame them for using it because it's so perfect. It's just an easy, easy shorthand, and it is exactly wrong. And pretty much everyone except the husband in the situation can see how it's exactly wrong. I know all that to be true, but I also know that whatever your gender, you're curious about how good those Dyson jobs really are. <laughs> but either way, it was it was a funny reason. It wasn't an infidelity. It wasn't it wasn't drugs. It wasn't some it wasn't some shady thing. It was something very very dopey that he had done. Right. Right. He's just incompetent. Well, I mean, he's you know, runs a successful company it seems. He's incompetent in terms of gifting your wife. So, Jimmy and Ira leave with the Hummel. And they seem to be having this kind of camaraderie at the end of that scene that I thought was kind of a pleasure. Again, it made me think of a different show where every week there's this kind of honor amongst thieves. Because as much as it went wrong and as much as we see where Jimmy is in a dark place, I like that he came through for Ira. You know, that like he got the call and, okay, he put this guy on this job. 
I, I like that Ira would come out of that going, okay, this this went sideways, but but the guy the guy came through for me. You could believe that next time Jimmy called, Ira would say, all right, you've got my ear, you know. Right, right. I don't know if you saw the film American Animals. No. That came out recently. It's sort of a heist film, but not really. And and I would don't want to say much more about the plot. But one of the things it focuses on is the difficulty of, you. so now you've got the valuable thing. How do you unload it? Right. I could see this show getting mired in a week or two of, man, it's much harder to get 8000 for a stolen Hummel than, than it sounded. You yeah, know? right. Um, maybe not. Maybe next week he's counting the money. Right. Depending uh, what they want to do uh, with uh, Jimmy's time this season, that you know, that Ira could be the new Marco. Absolutely. They could be running around together doing stuff. I had that exact same thought of like, wait, what does this remind me of? Them walking off kind of being chummy. Right. Um, I would almost be surprised if they weren't thinking of that, Chris, because that felt so deliberate that that this is a side of Jimmy that we've really only seen in that one other relationship. Right. It could be that the whole reason for doing this caper was to introduce Ira, who could be important for all we know. At the very least, if that happens, that's a cool thing to do to say, oh, here's a character that we had on the bench that you weren't even thinking about who we can do a lot with. Right. Well, let's get to that letter. I think that's the main piece of that last scene. And obviously, we're meant to see that Kim and Viola are working together and that this is thus far not a situation that is breaking down. Right. But obviously, Kim is a little bit concerned about Jimmy and she's looking at him kind of funny. And and Mm -hmm. I just kind of chose to take it at face value and say, okay, I don't know. I don't know if Kim's looking at him with worry or with the suspicion that we've talked about Mm -hmm. where she's thinking... He's not handling this right. He's not grieving. Mm-hmm. Her, her crying and then saying to Jimmy, no, I need to be alone. To me, that speaks volumes about their relationship. And suddenly everything seems precarious. Right. Because we can see from Jimmy's actions and from the look on his face that his emotions aren't quite there. He's not quite sure about this human interaction stuff. <laughs> I love the scene. I thought that uh, he did such a great job. He was so blasé. And it's the eating of the cereal while you read this letter from your recently dead brother about how he, you know, thinks you're okay or whatever, you know, to just... Yeah, let's see what the old boy has to say. I you know, know, to just be so blasé about it and to uh, be munching cereal between sentences. And uh, he just, just does a fantastic job of that. And my feeling was that uh, maybe when she wells up and cries... And he's just at the end. And, you know, what does he say that, uh, uh, you know, say what you will. The man could write a letter. You know, that just says it says nothing about the content and just comments on uh, the how well crafted the writing is. You know, so uh, I think when Kim wells up and cries, to me, the message uh, seemed like maybe it was uh, that she's more moved than Chuck's death than Jimmy is. At this point, it's just telling you that uh, to me, it seemed like, wow, it, that made her cry about Chuck being gone, about about the intensity of Chuck and Jimmy's relationship. And uh, it didn't uh, do much to Jimmy at all. And I think she's looking at him going, does he not have the feelings? Which is scary. Or is he pushing it down, which is troubling? Right. But is she even thinking about him is the other question. She may just be experiencing it herself. I think you're right that she has her own feelings about Chuck. In some ways, it may be. Let's give Kim a moment where she reacts to Chuck being gone. That's mixed with this the twisted aspect of this letter turning out to be this really sweet note. I think she's largely moved on Jimmy's behalf. You know, when you look at a person uh, who is going, th- who should be grieving, you grieve. <laughs> and even though Jimmy's not sitting there grieving, or he seems like he... He got finished grieving over a 48-hour period or something. It's still, she's, she's like moved by watching a man read a letter from his deceased brother, you know, even, even though the man in the picture does not seem moved. He's either legitimately unfazed or he's trying to appear unfazed. Right. And neither one of those are very inviting to the person that he's in a relationship with who's right there with all these feelings right. and, and who's willing to go there with him and willing to have these feelings. Yeah. So maybe she just needs to feel them on her own and not filter it through Jimmy's experience. And that's why she left the room, but maybe she finds him personally off-putting or odious in that moment and doesn't want to look at him, doesn't want to think about him because she either thinks you're so callous or she thinks, Oh my God, you poor man, you can't even see that this should make you feel better. And then the other side of it is if Chuck was, 
shitty to him in his life and didn't put him in the will and all this other stuff. Should this note really make that much of a difference to Jimmy? Like, how moved were you by the note? Uh, really not at all. It was just a, a very, it was nice, but uh, it, it was undated. It really seemed like uh, he did probably write it four years ago or something, you know, so it didn't, it didn't have much impact for me. Yeah, say what you want. The guy could write a letter. Yep. Yeah, I feel that if the letter were supposed to make us feel like, oh gosh, how meaningful this letter is, that it would have been written better. Yeah, they would have put that in there and made, they would have brought us there and they didn't, or they would have made, it, it would have been so well done that it would have uh, tripped Jimmy up and he would have gotten uh, a little choked up over it, you know. Uh, but it wasn't. It was kind of like a form letter from a lawyer to a client or something. Maybe she is thinking, this is good for Jimmy that Chuck felt this, but how sad that it ended the way it did anyway. Right. And, oh, my God, it's just so sad. Right. These two fucked up brothers, I got to get out of here. Right. I think that that's it. Yeah. But I think that she will, uh, based on the way they're showing us these scenes, it seems like they would, in another episode or three, have her kind of call Jimmy on it and say, you're not processing this right, or why aren't you really grieving or what's wrong with you you're acting weird i think that that's got to be where it's going in a sense just because that seems like that's the way you put a wedge between them Mm -hmm. this this ended at the perfect moment because the door is not closed but he does not choose to push it and go in the room which you know would be a little invasive of her space but it's not a slammed door he stops there and we also can see on his face that whatever he's thinking it doesn't seem to be that really was a nice letter i don't know what's wrong with me (laughs) right or, yeah, I mean, I didn't see, to me, anything except for, oh, I, I think I'm supposed to probably go and console her, and no, once you close a door where it comes within three inches of closing, you're kind of genuinely saying, no, don't come console me, so I guess I should not do that. The look on his face is not the look of a person who's who's feeling the the moment. Right, right, no. It's the look of a person who's somewhat bemused and bewildered by by what to do. right. Well, that is it for Something Beautiful. We've come to the part in the episode that I would call the point of comparison. This is where we will begin to compare Better Call Saul to a classic spinoff. We've been using that term classic spinoff kind of loosely, just meaning a spinoff from the past. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily a spinoff that is is in the pantheon of great spinoffs. Very loosely this week. And um, when I suggested this to you, I told you that I had found a list online that I thought seemed interesting and was worth pursuing because there were 10 items on the list and we had 10 episodes of Better Call Saul to compare them to. So I just thought, hey, let's go off this list. It was a list. It says the most important spinoffs of all time. Um, I just thought that sounded like, hey, there it is. That's what we're looking for. And I have to admit, now that we are looking at our third spinoff from this list, I find it very hard to believe that this list has any... Real authority on the on the subject of spinoffs. The show we had to watch this week was like so bad that there's no way that this is like any kind of a legit list of spinoffs. This is obviously a terrible list. This spinoff. It's not it's not good or bad. Lists aren't evil. Well, or heroic. They're just lists. Are we talking about this now or are we talking about the show? I don't know. I mean, we'll talk about the show. And I can just go ahead and tell you, Chris, I'm, I'm right there with you. The spinoff, Mr. T and Tina. <laughs> has convinced me that this list is questionable. And that is the episode of television that we're going to be comparing Better Call Saul to. Mr. T and Tina, not to be confused with, there's no Mr. T of Mr. T fame has nothing to do with this. This is before Mr. T got big on the A-team and everything. So this is a spinoff from Welcome Back, Cotter, where Pat Morita was on Welcome Back, Cotter. I do not remember Pat Morita ever being on Welcome Back, Cotter, but apparently he was. And then he spun off uh, to Mr. T and Tina. Okay, I can give you a little background on that. Pat Morita was not actually on Welcome Back, Cotter as a character. It's very similar to what they were going to do with Barnaby Jones spinning off from canon, which is to say that the first episode of the second season of Welcome Back, Cotter is called Career Day. And on that episode, a Japanese inventor played by Pat Morita comes into the school, gets made fun of by the sweat hogs for being short, and for being Japanese, mm-hmm. and it's horribly racist throughout the episode and just kind of gets worse in a way. But the, the the point of the episode, starting off the second season of Welcome Back, Cotter, was to give us an episode where uh, someone tries to woo Gabe Cotter away from James Buchanan High um, and his, his class that needs him for a lucrative job because uh, Takahashi, 
played by Pat Morita, is opening a new factory or a new branch, whatever, of his company, his Japanese company, in Chicago. And he wants someone to run it. And he can give Gabe Cotter triple the salary and a company car and a place. And yes, I did watch this episode so that I could know the background of, of Mr. T. Wow. Um, and at the end of the episode, after the Sweathogs have tried to sabotage the job offer for Gabe, and after the vice principal Woodman has um, has dressed up as a geisha <laughs> and tried to horn in on the job offer, uh-huh. and after the Sweathogs have dressed up in cliched karate garb and jumped around going "aso" and all this stuff, uh-huh. um, uh, Mr. Cotter says, "This is where I belong." Uh, not with this lucrative job with this okay. company that you are building. Um, and at the end of that, it just ends with Pat Morita and Gabe Kaplan hamming for the camera. So it makes me think at this point, Pat Morita must already have been beloved by general audiences for his role on Happy Days. Right, right. He had been on there. And he left Happy Days to do this and then was back on Happy Days as a guest and then a regular in the later <laughs> years of the Happy Days. So this was sort of Pat Morita in the middle of his yeah. successful career had this, hey, do you want your own show? Right. And they gave him this spinoff. But so this episode of Welcome Back, Cotter was designed to spin off this character, to create this character that they were then going to spin off. How much better was the episode of Welcome Back, Cotter than the episode, the pilot episode of Mr. T and Tina that we watched? <sighs> There are so many things about Mr. T and Tina, and we're about to get there. I would say that... But I like Welcome Back, Cotter. And even if it was a mediocre episode, I feel like it would have been better than the Mr. T and Tina. Welcome Back, Cotter had a charm to it. Right. That that was almost able to get past how bad it seemed by today's standards. But if what you're really asking is, how does it compare to Mr. T and Tina? I think Mr. T and Tina is going to make any show look good, just about. Okay. Right? Yes. Welcome Back, Cotter was a successful show going into its second season with, like I said, a cast of memorable yeah, yeah. characters. Right. Um, and Mr. T and Tina is nowhere near that. What's interesting is that the first scene of Mr. T and Tina is a scene that feels like it could have been tacked on to the end of the Career Day episode of Welcome Back, yes. Cotter, because he leaves the school. Right. What you don't know if you just watch Mr. T and Tina is that the Sweat Hogs have seen this guy like one day and then the next day. <laughs> okay, so he is not. I thought he had been a character who was around the school for a while. Yeah. All right. The episode of Welcome Back, Cotter aired on September 23rd, 1976. Two nights later is when Mr. T and Tina aired. Oh, okay. They really tried to hook it up. Guest star Pat Morita, who we all know, is on this show and it's setting up his new show. Yeah. There's an applause break when Pat Morita walks into the classroom uh, on Welcome Back, Cotter. So there's a sense that there's a persona building in, in Pat Morita that is marketable and that we're trying to push. And I feel like what he does in Mr. T and Tina, it has shades of George Jefferson and Archie Bunker and memorable grumps and grouches. Yeah. And maybe even a little closed-minded and a little old-fashioned and all that stuff. Right. We should approach the pilot episode of Mr. T and Tina on two fronts. Okay. One is the show itself. And the other is the viewing experience of watching this show online that you and I both had. Um, I'm going to say this, and then I'll throw it to you. The show is below-average sitcom fodder for its era. It's one of the worst shows I've ever had to watch. The viewing experience was nightmarish. Mr. T. Could you come here a minute, please? Yes, Miss Kelly, what is it? I just wanted to tell you that I'm going to the store to get some bread, and I'll be back in two minutes. It's physically impossible to go to this store and back in two minutes. No, it isn't. Thanks to you. I did have also have a bad viewing experience. First of all, the tracking... Uh, on the, the VHS that they transferred from was all over the place and got very bad in moments. Uh, but uh, on top of that, my online experience, the way that the uh, website kept uh, uploading commercials, kept showing commercials in a way that uh, uh, I couldn't stop and and that then it would reset you to the beginning of the show and you had to try and find yourself again. Uh, it was a real hassle. This was on Daily Motion dot co dot uk or something where i found this link to this pilot mm-hmm. someone taped this off of television it was maybe taped onto an old tape i mean there's distortion and artifacting and tracking issues and mm-hmm. it's ancient and it feels like maybe it was played a bunch of times before mm-hmm. it was uploaded it's a distressed video phantasmagoria of 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 colors and sounds it it devolves into those moments at different points because of the shoddy condition of the tape now that's obviously not the condition of the show 
I kept thinking, what would I think of this if I was seeing like a super pristine, uh, cleaned up HD version of this? Yeah, I don't think at best it would have been any good. There's so many things about it that are misguided and dumb. I mean, we can talk about a few. There's no sense in, in you know, just sitting here nitpicking something. It, It's just... It's a fairly typical attempt, I think, to take a personality and spin it into a show with certain little things that feel like they're trying to be running gags. Yeah. There's terrible effects, and there, I, I didn't know it had sci-fi elements to it, but it does, and I don't know <laughs> right. if later episodes got more into his inventions, but in this, he's invented some kind of jet belt. Yeah. That can be operated with a remote control. You could get the gist of everything, I think, despite all the the uh, distortions on the video and stuff. I, I feel like, for the most part, I only, you know missed one or two little lines but for basically you get the idea and the yes the the most thrilling crazy wacky thing was this is this is on a level where it's so bad that you might want to watch it for how fun that is so bad it's good type of thing it's uh uh but uh the flying belt it's not a jet belt it's some kind of uh, magnetic belt so it makes no sound uh, and you just fl- they're just on wires you put whoever's wearing it you put them on a wire and you start floating up and like most everything in the episode uh, you just depend so much on the audience going wild they must have really put in a bunch of canned laughter and also had just told the audience go crazy or else you're not getting paid you know or something to really sell this because somebody floating up on wires is not the most thrilling thing you've ever seen it's not the funniest thing you've ever seen but you kind of can pretend it is if you've got a loud audience acting like it is so that's what they're doing there and but it's it reminds me a lot of any you know gilligan's island or something where you're just like hey we've got a visual idea let's figure out how to stick it in there yeah i mean i think you're right i think that's very common to shows of that time that they would have that kind of howling laugh track of people that seem like they're just having aneurysm time of their lives and then you yes if you filter it through a tape that has been played too many times and maybe recorded over too many times and then uploaded in a kind of you know questionable quality if you told me this was made by david lynch i would say this is horrifying <laughs> this is what it would look like to watch a sitcom in the 70s if your brain was actually melting while you were watching it yeah it's such an assault and knowing that we had to watch it and knowing that we had set the task of watching this and that therefore not only was I watching this and having this experience, but that you somewhere were going to be having the same experience and having to come and talk to me about it. I had several like breathless explosions of laughter watching this. Not the laughter necessarily that you associate with comedy, but the laughter of madness. <laughs> if you remember anything about it, it would be the completely farcical and silly elements of this belt that allows you to fly across the room. And then, as you said, the audience going just crazy for it. And then you throw on the audio distortion and the visual distortion. It was like, these are, these are tormented souls. (laughs) I mean, it just, that aspect of it made it feel like you were watching some transgressive piece of anti-narrative. Yeah. Right, right, an experimental art film. But knowing that it actually was the most mundane, banal thing in the world, which is a mediocre to bad sitcom. Yeah. Getting ready for this episode, I was excited for this conversation. I was excited to, to get a chance to talk to you about it. The same way you would be if you knew someone somewhere had the same nightmare you had and you guys were about to compare notes on it. Well, on the uh, positive ledger, I would say Ted Lang was on it, and that's great. I like him as a person. Uh and most of the people on the show I did not like as a person, and that gives you a couple points right there. Um, even though he had to do a very broad, wacky black guy, uh, and uh, he didn't have any, you know, actual good jokes or anything, but he was Ted Lang, and we can say, well, thank goodness that he was on something poor that didn't fly, because then he was free to be on Love Boat, which, uh, as you know, I, I've uh, tasked myself with watching... Uh, every episode of The Love Boat, and I haven't gotten through all of it yet, but I'm close. And so uh, I've spent uh, a zillion hours with with Isaac uh, on that show and uh, enjoy him as a person. Uh, so seeing him on this was kind of a, a, a tough passage. Yeah, it does seem like this show tanking set him free to do the thing that I know him for. I'm sure Ted Lang has done other things. And I wouldn't say that the character of Harvard, the handyman on this, was too different from Isaac in terms of the sort of indelicately applied 
stereotypical cool black guy. I think that what you see on Love Boat is a much more refined and charming version of that archetype. Yes, he does still play, on the Love Boat, he does still play the the wacky black guy, but it's not nearly as over-the-top crazy. Right. I mean, it's like this is the, again, you know, it's a, I felt like it was a pretty offensive show. Maybe at the time it was, I mean, you don't hear people talking about, oh, Mr. T and Tina was the first network show with an Asian protagonist. You know, like you don't hear people say that because this was such a bad show. Um, so it can't really lay claim to any of that glory it might have had if it had been allowed to become a thing and maybe would have become a significant thing to the Asian community to see themselves represented in this way. It's weird to be represented in something bad, you know, like, right. So you feel like it's a show that most people are just kind of not wanting to admit that it existed. Well, and everybody's talking in unflattering accents and mixing up their R's and L's and stuff. And so it's, you know, it's pretty rough. You would never base a show around that dynamic now. You would never say we're going to have an Asian American family on a show and we're still going to have sort of racist jokes, even if they are kind of in on it. And even if, as I said, it's presented as a kind of Archie Bunker, George Jefferson guy who who is not so nice himself, and so the jokes seem to come from that sitcom realm where people just bust each other's balls all day. Right. The video quality of this of this upload was so bad that I could, didn't even recognize Susan Blanchard, who plays Tina, as an actress who had appeared in a couple of John Carpenter films. She was in The Prince of Darkness and They Live. Okay. But I did feel like when she showed up on screen, we were supposed to already like her. This was a strange introduction to her character, honestly. Mm-hmm. If this is to be the show, these two characters, Mr. T and Tina, he is the rich inventor who lives in a penthouse apartment and makes crazy inventions. And you can see maybe the formula would have been to have a different invention in every episode. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And Harvard, the handyman, comes in and, and hangs out with them, and they're sort of buddies. But there's also this weird sort of, all right, now get out of here, handyman kind of quality <laughs> to their relationship. Yeah, right. And Tina is the governess who watches his children. And it's just a strange, it's strange to introduce this storyline of she's already the governess, he fires her, and then he rehires her Mm -hmm. within one episode. It almost seems like where's the episode where he hires her the first time that seems like the logical sitcom pilot? Well, it seems more like this just should have been episode seven after a bunch of other normal wacky adventures, then have the one where she gets fired and brought back. I would have thought the pilot would be, this inventor from Tokyo is now in Chicago starting up his new company, and he has to hire a governess, and here she is. You know, like, there's your pilot. Right. No, they just skipped the pilot. Right. But it was a weird situation to suddenly be expected to care about with no setup. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. They had the kind of jokes where the joke really doesn't make sense, and uh, that should be a bad rule, but it can work, like, you know, on Sanford and Son... There will be jokes that don't make sense, but they just fly on the on the lovability of uh, of Fred Sanford and and they they make comedy sense. They just sound good. Uh, they would do that on this show, and it wouldn't work at all. What was the one I jotted down here? Where uh, 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 the the landlady is talking about her her uh, problems with her TV, and uh, uh, Harvard said. Uh, uh, her <laughs> her picture is always fuzzy, which, you know, I guess we're supposed to take that to mean she's crazy, but it's not really clear. It's just that it's a, a laugh line for some reason. And uh, <laughs> um, and Mr. T, Pat Marita adds, uh, her vertical hold, not so steady either. <laughs> and I really don't know what that means. Is it because she's always falling down? Is it easy to... Uh, push her into bed what is he getting at uh but whatever the case it doesn't work in the way that like if fred sanford said that uh, somehow it would it would work Uh, here here it doesn't work when you said it just then it made me laugh (laughs) it almost feels like they're throwing in a buzzword yeah as a euphemism what is man that guy's vertical hold isn't so great like what does that mean he's always stooping and then standing up straight again when he doesn't mean to right uh and then another thing they rely on is the uh that's a really cheap way to go is to not have a joke, but just try to trick you into having fun by the likability. I mean, uh, of somebody, which again, it's kind of what I said with Fred Sanford, but it's it, it when the person is not somebody particularly likable at all, it really doesn't fly. And when there's really no joke at all, it, it wouldn't really fly even with Fred Sanford. But the, my example is where the, uh, 
I guess the the daughter-in-law or whoever she is. Oh, oh, the, let's see. The, that's right. The old man is his uncle. So right. she's his sister or something. And she is into Gary Cooper. They just got back from the movies. Uh, it, you know, she's mooning over Gary Cooper, how great he is, uh, and then starts to sing, Oh, bury me not on the Lone Prairie, you know, or whatever, a cowboy song while swinging her purse in a big circle and walking out of the room. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, they put huge audience laughter on that just because it's like, we just love her. You know, I mean, I, that's the only reason I can see that there would be this big reaction because it's not a joke as much as it's just odd or annoying but the show acts like this is so strong we can end her scene on it and have her walking slowly out of the room while she sings the song. Gary Cooper. kind of hard to believe that they thought of this as an idea for a show to go pitch to Pat Morita to get him out of his Happy Days contract. Like, that seems like, what what did they pitch him? What did he hear that made him say, yeah? I'm not going to blame Pat Morita. And, I mean, he is a, a, a great guy, and he's a funny guy and uh, a very uh, competent uh, uh, actor. But uh, I think the show is just too too weak and too bad and all the care yeah you know uh welcome back cotter is the marx brothers it's it's these crazy kids uh who are really bucking the system in goofy crazy ways and it's fun puns and silly insults um mr t and tina it's just uh the characters are bland they're they're just a family except for the fact that they mix up their R's and L's and they're Asian and they uh, it kind of sounds like some of the jokes are about how small they are and stuff. And the theme song, by the way, is a uh, takes the Tokyo to Chicago sort of thing way literally by having this kind of Chicago mm-hmm. sounding big jazz song. Uh, and then you throw in the ding 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 The wood blocks right. and the traditional Asian instruments. It was so... Um, the fortune cookie font. This is that kind of thing that's pandering and at the same time offensive. So who is that for? Like, who listened to that and thought this was a great idea? Did Pat Morita, did other people in the Asian community at the time say, the show passes muster? I really don't know. I I did not look at the credits to see how many actual Asian people worked on the show. Um, But my feeling is probably not a lot. Well, it is. Yeah, that's a whole huge issue that we could discuss forever, the, the confusing gray areas of what's racist and what's not in different eras because yeah you've got pat marita himself going i'll be the lead of this show which now would not fly as a show for the uh, even you couldn't even get through the opening much less the first two minutes without getting the biggest twitter storm you can imagine but in that day pat marita could say oh yeah i'll be the the leader of that show. It's a mess, but it's historically, it's it's one of those things that's in the area of like, okay, well, everybody at the time wasn't thinking this is necessarily so racist at all. They were just thinking, well, this is fun, and this is how we treat race today, and even Pat Morita is on board. He is having fun, and he's getting a paycheck, and I don't think he was necessarily being a, a huge sellout. He was just being like, well, I'm going to get my own show, and so, yeah, those issues are... Uh, very complicated and I don't necessarily I don't I don't think we can hash it out or figure out where everybody's mind was I mean representation matters we can't we can't say that it doesn't but this seems like that kind of it would it would be a pyrrhic victory if this show was being held up that's right you could yes you could give it points though for saying hey in its time it had a bunch of Asian people on this show and that was better than what they might have had the day before one little thing that I thought was a nice joke out of the whole show uh i would not say it was a good joke it's just a two-second moment uh that felt cute enough that i was like hey that's cute you know it gave me a smile if only for for maybe not two seconds maybe one and a half seconds uh and not for being a good joke necessarily but just for being nice and silly which is okay tina the nanny gets fired the two kids find this out and they are upset and they run out of the room crying uh, immediately after the old man uncle 
is upset and he puts a handkerchief to his eyes and runs out crying. And that just uh, got me. It's like, oh, that's sweet and funny. And then, of course, it's over immediately. And the whole rest of the show is pretty terrible. When you're talking about something like that as one of the high points of the show, you recognize there hasn't been a lot yeah. to hold on to. Right. At this point, there's really nothing left but to address the most important question. I think we kind of tipped our hand throughout this whole conversation, but I'm going to ask you, just in case something turned your mind around, do you think Mr. T and Tina is better than Better Call Saul? <laughs> no, I don't. We can just say that. We've already made it clear. All right. So we need to talk about the future of this whole sitcom comparison thing because... Right, because now, does this mean that we... What this list that you've been going on, and we've been getting our sitcoms from. Uh, I mean, I knew from the start. Well, Barney Jones, After Mash. I was like, hmm, those seem kind of weird to be on there. But okay, uh, this one though just shows that whoever made this list, uh, uh, who who made the list? I found it on Reddit. Reddit. It's this guy, Mountain underscore Dew sixty nine. Mountain Dew sixty nine. Mountain underscore Dew. Yeah, sixty nine. Okay. I knew if I told you his name, I would hear that judgment. Ever since you stopped drinking soda. <laughs> well, it turns out it would have been a right judgment. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Mountain Dew, with drinking Mountain Dew. I just think that, you know, if that's his entire credentials, he doesn't have any, we don't know who he is. Uh, so I really do have a question about Mountain underscore Dew 69. Do you think he just chose 69 because that's a cool number, or do you think there were 68 Mountain underscore Dews before him, and he just <laughs> went with the first one that was available? Uh, it's a legit question, but I feel like from what we've learned that he's probably thinking it's a funny double entendre to put 69 in your name, so whatever. Well, I mean, obviously the guy is an idiot. So we can sort of just say we're ditching this list. And right. I'm telling you, Chris, we're going we're gonna to have a different way of choosing spinoffs next week. I'm going to bring in something different. Okay, so we're in agreement. Every, every possible spinoff will be a contender. I'll find a way to work them well, all now in. That, well, now, that doesn't seem like the right system still, because we want to be doing good spinoffs, important spinoffs. Like, I mean, obviously, we should end up getting to do uh, the Jeffersons. I've said that I like Laverne and Shirley because... Uh, uh, Michael McKean is on both, and I think that he was very strong in making that a very strong show. Mm -hmm. uh, he did a lot of writing for it. I would love if that's on the list. And uh, uh, there's just a lot of good – I mean, Andy Griffith technically is a spinoff, and that's a fantastic show. So I don't know about uh, – don't just make it random or we'll have another Mr. Tantina. I've never – Steered you wrong before. Just trust me. What you just just this list you steered us wrong. You you just did this like right up to now. Hot talk. <sighs> Hot talk. Antina is brought to you by All Temperature Cheer. Three temperatures, one detergent. All Temperature Cheer. All Tempa Cheer. <laughs>